It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas.
What's up, good folks? It's RJ Young. We are going to recap week one of the college football season. Starting off the top with number two, Ohio State at Notre Dame versus Notre Dame. And then we're going to go straight on through the craziness in the ACC and the Sun Belt, finishing with UNC and App State. Let's go. It's the number one college football show. So off the rip, we got number two, Ohio State, coming back to beat number five, Notre Dame, at the shoe, 21 to 10. Lots of questions we had going into this game. And for me, it was the Ohio State defense and how it might hold up in its first outing versus, oh my goodness, man, a really outstanding Notre Dame offense with a new quarterback. So Jim Knowles comes out there with multiple looks. What I thought was outstanding play from his defensive line. In particular, we saw Tommy Eichenberg making plays all over the field. But we also got to see what it looks like for Ohio State not to be operating on all cylinders and without their best weapon at wide receiver in Jackson Smith and Jigba for most of the game. C.J. Stroud looked out of sync for most of this game. Didn't feel like Travion Henderson or Mayan Williams was having an outstanding time just running the football. We saw... Ohio State go into the locker room without having scored at least double-digit points, that's 10 points or more, in the Ryan Day era for the first time. And I, like you, had lots of questions watching Notre Dame lead the Buckeyes at the shoe 10-7 to at halftime. But then we got to see a little bit of C.J. Stroud and that offense come alive in the second quarter, or excuse me, second half. Going into the fourth quarter, we get to see C.J. Stroud finish out what, what I thought was an outstanding way to end this game. Great play he made to Johnson to really give them the lead and take advantage of what I thought was a Notre Dame team that just wasn't up to the moment in that moment. Now, C.J. Stroud going 24 of 34 for 223 with two TDs is not the kind of line that we're used to, but it does get it done. For me, again, it's Jim Knowles and the defense being able to keep a lid on Tyler Buckner and that offense, especially with Michael Mayer seeming like he was going to find his way into this game come hell or high water. We did, ended up with what I thought was a low-scoring game and one in which Notre Dame covered. Now, for me, questions coming out of this game, right? No matter who wins, who's still on the table for these teams? What's still on the table? What's still to play for? I think if you're Notre Dame, you can still make the college football playoff if you win all the way out because everybody understands this Ohio State team is very good. For Ohio State, you keep your undefeated record intact. You make it all the way to the Big Ten championship game. You win the Big Ten championship game. You make the college football playoff. What I thought was more interesting about this is how these two teams looked like they stacked up against the last two teams to play in the national final, and that would be Alabama and Georgia. We'll talk a little bit more about Georgia later on, but you should know Alabama thumped the defending Mountain West champ Utah State 55-0 to in their season opener. Back to Ohio State and Notre Dame. How does tonight's performance from each team impact expectations for the rest of the season? Kind of sort of covered that, but I also want to put in there, CJ Stroud has a lot that he can gain from this game. I think on the whole, this is one of the worst games that he's played in his career going back to the loss at Michigan. And we're talking about an Ohio State team that's trying to overcome this thought that they were not physical enough last year. They did not accomplish any of their goals last year, beating Michigan, winning the Big Ten Championship, and getting back to the National Championship game. That's all to play for them for, but they have a lot to fix. And I'm sure Ryan Day is going to be the first person to say that they escaped this game 
rather than came back and won it in a game where they were supposed to win by 17 or more. Notre Dame keeps that to 11. Defense does look better. I've stressed that. I will continue to stress that. I think that the multiple looks and the way that they're able to get in and out of those looks is going to help them as they get further into their Big Ten competition. Now, does it really matter that Jackson Smith and Jigba did not play most of this game? No, not really, because the one thing that I've been saying about Ohio State and its receiving core is that it is loaded. We got to see that with Emeka Egbuka, nine catches for 90 yards. We also know that Julian Fleming is on that roster. When he's healthy and ready to play, it'll be there. Marvin Harrison uh, Jr., excuse me, is still looking like David Boston to me. You have weapons. It's just about getting everybody in sync. You got this first one under your belt. It's a big one. It's at home. You were flirting with another Oregon disaster, but you showed a little maturity, and you came out ahead of that. Really excited for what's ahead of Ohio State because there's a lot to build on. Can you close the gap between this Buckeyes team and the Georgia team that we saw earlier this Saturday afternoon is basically the question that I have, and that's why I want to go from this game, number two, Ohio State defeating number five, Notre Dame 21-10 to to the big game of the weekend for me, which was number three, Georgia versus number 11, Oregon. Now, the spread was pretty similar to the one that we saw for Ohio State and Notre Dame at about 17 and a half, got bedded down to 16 and a half by kickoff in Atlanta. And then Kirby Smart and Georgia took this opportunity to tell me, to tell you, to tell anybody that wants to know that we are the baddest team in the land. We are the defending national champions for a reason. They stomped a mud hole in Oregon and walked it dry. 49-3, to the largest victory for Georgia against an AP-ranked opponent. The first Pac-12 team that Kirby Smart has ever played against as a head coach of Georgia. Bo Nix came back like he never left. That's not good news for Oregon. For Georgia, it was easy pickings. I got to see Christopher, the peacemaker Smith, out there making plays. That seems to be very much his defense this year. He had a pick and an outstanding tackle in, in the open field to start this game. Really excited about him. The other interception that Bo Nix threw was actually a jump ball for which Malachi Starks, a true freshman, also from the state of Georgia, went up and got it. I highlighted Malachi Starks for you right here on the number one college football show in our SEC preview as one of those stud five stars for which are just all over the roster for the Georgia Bulldogs. 15 of the 85 scholarship players are former five stars, and that is just what they have been doing. As a matter of fact, I thought it was funny that for Kirby Smart, what was really getting under his skin is how inexperienced this group was for him, mostly on the defense. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, man, they're so inexperienced because you got all these dudes that stay forever and get their shot to play. And then they're gone, right? And then you come back and you're like, hey, I don't have anybody that's experienced. Yes, but you have talent all over the map here. And for years, basically since the start of the Kirby Smart era, what we have said is the defense is going to come to play. And then Stetson Bennett said, no, 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 no. That's over now. It's over now. I'm back. I'm back like I never left. I started out as a scout team quarterback. I went to Jones. I came back. I earned a job. I beat out your five-star JT Daniels. I beat out your five-star Carson Beck. I beat out your five-star Brock Vandergriff. And now it is my team. And he's operating like it is absolutely his team. Completing 85% of his passes in the first half. Had the best passing percentage for a quarterback in the Georgia era. Under Kirby Smart, 25-31 for 368 pass yards. 
with two TDs through the air. My goodness. Okay, now I got to really start four total TDs. I have to start talking about Stetson Bennett winning the Heisman Trophy now. That's where we're at. We've gone from that to this. That, my goodness, man. If you'd have told me that in 2017, the dude that's backing up Jake Fromm that has to leave the program is going to be here in 2022, make it a do what it do, I would have told you you were crazy. But then again, 2017, you told me I've been working at Fox Sports hosting this show. I'd have also told you you were crazy. We're both getting to live our dreams, and I'm glad to see he's operating on all cylinders. Now, on top of that, he's got some studs around him, right? Kenny McIntosh is a dude back there, both running and catching the ball. You were able to replace your best wide receiver, not named George Pickens, it's Jermaine Burton, who decided to go to Alabama, team you beat for the national championship, with some other absolute dudes on the outside. And what I found most fun about this is when Stetson Bennett finally got the hook late in third quarter, and we get to see Carson Beck, and we get to see Kiaris Jackson. It was very clear to me that them dudes wanted to play too. And I was grateful to see that Kirby Smart didn't tell them to just run the football because it's like, hey, they want to score TDs too. And that's still not just a scout team they're playing against. That is the number 11 team in the country going into this game and Dan Lanning's Oregon Ducks. That is filled with an SEC coaching staff, I might add. Kenny Dillingham coached in the SEC at Auburn. Tosh LePoy, defense coordinator, was an assistant at Alabama with Kirby Smart and Dan Lanning for Nick Saban. They knew what they were walking into when they were facing Georgia. And by the third quarter, we're talking about how much they'll learn from this and how Dan Lanning is saying, hey, it is a choice to come out there and play. Nah, man, if I got Jimmy's and you got Joe's, it don't matter what my X's and O's be like. One of the things I love most about this sport is, unlike the NFL, which is a socialist system where you give the worst team the best pick here in college football land, where we have free market capitalism reigning. It only matters. Can you recruit and can you sell people? All right. I'm looking for Willie Loman types out here. And that is what Kirby smart was able to do. He's got more Jimmy's than you got Joe's. It's like being a driver in motorsports. No driver's going to outrun or make fast a slow car. Okay. It could have been Vince Lombardi, Don Shula, and Hank Schramm on the sideline for the Oregon Ducks, and they were still going to get beat like they stole something because them dudes at Georgia is just different, man. They just coming out here like they ain't got nothing to lose, and all they want is to win more national championships. It is their time in Athens, and I'm excited to see what that looks like for the rest of us going into the rest of this 2022 season. Now, for Oregon, it's just a bad look. It's a bad look for Oregon, but it's also a bad look for the Pac-12, which we'll get into here a little bit later on. But this was supposed to be the class team, or one of the two class teams, in the conference, not named USC, right? We don't get to see USC play against an SEC East foe, as much as I would like to in 2022. So you really need to show us the neutrals at play that the Pac-12 was about something. And it turns out, no. When you're playing the defending national champion, the team that we expect to win the SEC East and play in the SEC title, you don't even rate. You get beat down 49 to three. Now, a lot of what we call learns in the business going to come off of this, specifically for Bo Nix. Now, you also have some outstanding players on that Oregon team. I think that Noah Sewell and Justin Flo could be two of the best linebackers as a tandem in the country. They just got to grow into that a little bit. I think they'll find their way with Bo Nix. We might even get to see Ty Thompson play a little football before it's all said and done, but Bo Nix does have some madness, right? He will get himself out of some bad situations and make you look good from time to time, but he's also going to stare down Christopher Smith 
and throw him the football when he should probably be throwing a, a screen outside to his running back. Things you're going to learn from, things you don't get to learn in front of a capacity crowd at Mercedes-Benz Stadium filled with red, rooting for Kirby Smart and the Bulldogs. It's just tough for them. All right. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. From that SEC versus Pac-12 matchup to this SEC versus Pac-12 matchup, the number seven Utah Utes, number five in my rankings, went down to Gainesville to play the Florida Gators in Billy Napier's first year as a head coach, first game as a head coach, and they come out holding that L. 29 to 26, the Florida Gators knock off the number seven Utah Utes as an un- ranked team now going into this week i'd asked my buddy jeff schwartz should we be worried about this if for no other reason than vegas had to spread it about two and a half which meant that florida was supposed to be in this game every step of the way for me the question was going to be about what does anthony richardson provide you billy napier and what can you do about it if anything kyle whittingham and defensive coordinator morgan scally turns out not a whole hell of a lot the first half, I saw Anthony Richardson look around, saw Greengrass, runs for a 45-yard touchdown. He was able to operate with impunity back there. Didn't feel like anybody was able to get to him. And when he went, wanted to hand the ball off to Trevor Etienne, he was able to do that too. I thought the game was nip and tuck there all the way. It was very, very close the whole way. But when you are a top-10 team and you are the defending Pac-12 champion and you are expected to be the team that represents the Pac-12 in its bid to try to make the college football playoff, the thing you have to beat is the unranked SEC opponent in front of you away from home. You were not able to get that done. For the Pac-12, it could not have gone any worse, period. You took an Oregon loss to Georgia, which we're all willing to let go, but I wanted to see you stay in that game, and you were nowhere near staying in that game, losing 49-3. And in this game, one in which I thought Utah should have won handily, you are able to do nothing. You gave up 29 points to a quarterback that had to fight for his job with Emory Jones last year. And in a first year with a head coach who's never coached in the SEC and never faced a team the caliber of Utah in any game that he had at Louisiana. It's just a terrible look for the Pac-12. You're going home and you're now you have to hope that USC turns out to be exactly what they seem to be when they played Rice today. They won 66-14. Three interceptions returned for touchdowns in that game. Outstanding for them to start the Lincoln-Riley era just in there. I wanted to give Pac-12 fans something more to say, hey, we had this win going on over here. But no, if we're watching as neutrals, we probably come away thinking nothing has changed inside the Pac-12. I would have liked to seen that go differently. I thought that Utah could have done that for them. That's just not the way it is. Anthony Richardson ends the game 17 to 24, 168 yards passing, 11 carries for 104 yards, three TDs. That's a Cam Newton line. Kind of reminds me of what would Cam Newton have been like at Florida? Maybe Anthony Richardson is the answer to that question in 2022. Shout out to the Florida Gators, man, because they thought that they could do this and they looked at a very physical Utah Utes team and decided, no, no, no. We want every bit of this. 
Bring it here, Salt Lake City. We're going to give you a little bit of this swamp booty, send you right back on home. From that game to what I thought is the most underrated of the ranked matchups today. Cincinnati, number 23 Cincinnati, traveling to number 19 Arkansas to play the pitfall. Sam Pittman and his Arkansas Razorbacks coming off of a 9-4 and season, an Outback Bowl win against Penn State, the same Penn State that was able to dispatch Purdue with a late comeback on Thursday night earlier this weekend. This was nip and tuck all the way, too. This looked a lot like the Utah and Florida game as I'm watching it in the 2.30 window. It'd be 2.30 Central time for those of y'all that don't know. It's doing this from Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Razorbacks get their first win against a ranked opponent in the opening week of their season, week one. Since 1975, right? They beat a top five USC team in 1975. They beat a number 23 Cincinnati in 2022. But a win is a win, and a win against that Lou Fickle-led team that's coming off of an appearance in the college football playoff last year, the first group of five program to achieve that feat is no small thing. It looks the same for me for the pit boss and his Razorbacks. K.J. Jefferson is a load of 235 pounds. He is not afraid to put his shoulder down and get after you. Raheem Rocket Sanders can still run the ball really well. Barry Odom's defense was able to hold up. K.J. Jefferson had 285 total yards with four total TDs in this game. Rocket Sanders rushed for 117 yards on 20 rushes. And then we got to see a little bit of why Eastern Washington transfer Ben Bryant got the start today. He went 26 of 43 for 325 pass yards, two TDs, and a pick in his debut at Cincinnati. Got to see a little bit of Evan Prater, the backup quarterback for Cincinnati, but none of this was enough to overcome what I think is an outstanding SEC team and what I think is a program that can challenge once again, like they challenged last year, Alabama when the time comes. We'll see what they grow into. I have high expectations for Arkansas. I'm having a lot of fun watching the Sam Pittman era continue to grow, continue to build. Great win for them to open the year. They are 1-0. They're moving on to the next. All right. Other games that happened throughout the day that we just found fascinating and interesting. Number 13, NC State nearly gave up the booty to the East Carolina Pirates, but managed to hold on for a 21-20 win. East Carolina's kicker had an opportunity to win this game twice or at least tie this game for them late in the fourth quarter, but we had a, a missed PAT and we had a missed 41-yard goal, 41-yard uh, field goal attempt with three minutes left. NC State manages to hold on 21 to 20. This is interesting for me. Since 2015, NC State is 29 and 0 when leading by 14 points or more. They led 21-7 to against East Carolina at one point in this game, and they get to keep that record intact. But it is a team that feels tremendously shaky, especially for me. Uh, man, had them very high. On my, actually, I think I had them a little bit lower, around 16-18 range in my rankings, but number 13 in the AP. They returned a bunch. We all expect them to be pretty good. We expect them to challenge Clemson Oct October 1 for the division championship, and then perhaps go into the ACC title game and maybe give themselves an opportunity to make the college football playoff. They have a lot to fix over there. Iowa wins 7-3 against FCS South Dakota State. Now, don't get, you know, that upset about it. South Dakota State's the number three team in the FCS. But if you're keeping score, that makes you like number 133 if you are counting the FBS and the FCS together, depending on how you want to look at that. But the point here is that Iowa plays outstanding defense. Now, I know this. They scored two safeties in this game. They also did not score a single TD. They managed to score seven points 
without getting in the end zone at all. This game was three to three at halftime, and it was three to three for a little while longer after that. And your man's looking up, and it's five to three. And I had to call my homeboy up and say, "You got to get this South Dakota State game on versus Iowa. It is five to three at Kinnick, and he's all about it because he, like me, is a degenerate. We were the dudes that were rooting for the '96 game, 2011, where LSU Alabama. If you don't like that kind of football and defensive football, I, I question." a lot about what you like about football. We all like to see points. That's fun. But I like to see dudes getting after it and absolutely stuffing people in their, in their locker back there like Jack Campbell was doing throughout this game. also found it interesting, Kurt Ferentz is just not moving off of Spencer Peters. He's just not doing it. That's going to be the quarterback. And if you're going to play Iowa this year, you're going to show up to a rock fight and they're going to have a bag full of rocks. I'm excited to see what they look like now. They need to get the offense fixed. I don't think you can take that sort of offense and get back to the Big Ten West, or I should say repeat as the Big Ten West champion, and then get back to the Big Ten championship. But it's a lot of fun, and I had a lot of fun watching it. All right? <laughs> Seven to three without a single TD. That's amazing. All right. North Carolina manages to win a thriller that is the polar opposite of what we saw Iowa and South Dakota State go. North Carolina wins 63-61 to 61 in Boone against Appalachian State. A lot happened in this game in particular. We saw Drake May was a dude for the second straight week. 24-36, 352 yards, four TDs, 76 yards rushing with a TD. That's his second straight 294-plus yard passing performance in as many weeks. UNC is 2-0, even as they could have just as easily been 1-1. One one. But also in here, we got Mac Brown absolutely dancing because he should have been dancing. They gave up 40 points in the fourth quarter, 300 plus yards to Appalachian State, and they still get to go home with a W with a win on the road. I'd be dancing too. Now to the point of whether or not the offense is any good. Yes, they are. Is the defense going to be any good? Ooh, Gene Chizik, you got some work to do. Check this out. Your man's working on the math. I'm an English major, getting a PhD in English before I got all this going on, but I'm laying that out to you to say, I had to go and check my math on this. Look, Gene Chizik's defense gave up 651 yards of offense to Appalachian State today. Today, okay? Last week, they gave up 335 yards to Florida A&M. They also have been scoring 59 and a half points a game. What I'm telling you is, no matter where you see UNC and when you see UNC, it's going to be a lot of fun. They're going to score a lot and they're going to give up a lot. So if you like that style of football, Mac Brown, Gene Chizik, Phil, Phil Longo, they got you down there in North Carolina. A lot of fun. I'm looking forward to seeing what they look like in the ACC 2-0. My Oklahoma Sooners going into week one of the Brent Venables era. A lot of people had questions about what this was going to look like, how this was going to be. Man, it's fine. It's fine. I felt like Nate Diaz looking at this 45-13 win over UTEP going, I'm not surprised, all right? Dylan Gabriel looked like a dude, 15-23, 253 total yards, three TDs. Eric Gray rushed for 101 yards on 16 carries. For me, though, the most important stat, nobody turned the ball over to you. Nobody. It's great. Ball control, you limit you to 316 yards of offense. You limit up to 13 points a game. You hand Brent Venables the game ball, and that man got emotional in the locker room. He was speechless as Joe Castiglione handed him the football for the first win of his career as a head coach at the place that he loves the most. I could hear a pin drop when that happened. Very, very excited to see what the Brent Venables era looks like. 
And there's lots to improve on here, right? We're going to get to see Billy Bowman get better at playing that safety position. We're going to see Dylan Gabriel get better at finding Marvin Mims, Theo Weiss down the field. And we're going to get to see that offensive line get better at running the football. I think that it's going to be a lot of fun to be an Oklahoma fan this season. All right. Michigan defeats Colorado State in their season opener, 51-7 to at the Big House. We still don't know who the hell the starting quarterback's going to be for week three, but it didn't look like Cade McNamara did a great job of saying that it's going to be me. That even said, J.J. McCarthy came in there for a couple zone reads, but nothing that we could really pull on. I was more impressed with the defense than I was the offense, quite frankly. I mean, I know Blake Corum is good, and I, I know Roman Wilson is good, and I know Donovan Edwards is good. But to see that they were able to replace edge guys like David Ajabo and Aiden Hutchinson was thrilling for me. The first guy that stuck out to me was Iyabi Anoba. So Iyabi Anoba comes from Tennessee Tech as a grad transfer. But you know his name because he was a five-star edge player at Alabama. Kicked off the team for all sorts of team infractions. Got himself together at Tennessee Tech. And then slyly is on Michigan's roster August 18th, just a couple of weeks before the season kicks off, and he has a sack of Clay Millen in this game to announce himself. And on the other side, we have big Mike Moore, six foot six, 292 pounds, but so athletic that defensive coordinator Jesse Minter had him in a foot nine. That means standing up at an outside linebacker position on a second down as they're going to attack their air raid. That is how athletic that man is. And how special he is, to say nothing of how special his sister is, she is a grad assistant for Michigan on that team this year, the first of the first woman to ever be a grad assistant at Michigan football. Congratulations to her and the Morris family. I'm excited to see how that defense continues to develop because as much as putting up 51 points on Colorado State in year one with Jay Norvell can be impressive, it's more impressive to me that you were able to keep the lid on Colorado State with that defense that got overhauled. You lost Dax Hill. You lost your defensive coordinator. You lost those two edge guys, and you come back and you throw down this sort of performance. That's outstanding. You got to feel good about that if you are Jim Harbaugh. All right, finishing out here, talk a little bit about the college football playoff and the board of managers making the decision to expand. Talked a little bit about this on Friday when the news dropped, but here's a little bit more of an expanded explanation as to how the 12-team format will work by 2026, if not by 2024, okay? So we'll get those 12 teams. The four highest-ranked conference champions will be seeded one through four, each receiving a first-round bye. That's crucial because that means you're actually playing for something. Then you're going to have teams seeded five through 12 will play each other in the first round on either the second or third weekend of December. So we're getting a little bit like a schedule here. And then the quarterfinals and semifinals will be played in bowl games on a rotating basis, and the championship game will be at a neutral site as under the current uh, four-team format. So I think that this is fascinating for a number of reasons. The first one is the Rose Bowl is probably going to try to work with everybody to make sure that the Rose Bowl gets to still take place on New Year's at around 2.30 Pacific time because having that sunset back there is a very big deal to them and the folks on the committee, and I hope that they all get that figured out because – I'm not for just throwing out tradition for that sake. I want to see the Rose Bowl incorporated into this. And I think most of you do too. And I think they're going to find some common ground there. Other part about this that is underrated, but I think is the most important part of the 12-team format. We're going to get on-campus playoff games. Those teams playing 5 through 12, you'll have at least half of them having to go play an away game, a true away game in a playoff atmosphere. 
I'm telling you, man, you send Clemson to Oklahoma for a playoff game at Owen Field, my goodness, you will not be able to keep your hands on any of those tickets. They will be gone quick, fast, and in a hurry. And unlike anybody else, I'm not going to point out any names, you know, like USC. We have 141 straight sellouts at Oklahoma of 84,000 people. We're UTEP today in 96-degree heat. I'm saying, if you want real football and you want it to matter, this is the way to do it. Put playoff games on campus. I'm so excited about that. I'm glad that we have got to this place in the 153-year history of college football, and I am so happy to be alive and well to see it. Okay, a couple hours. I'll see you guys again. We're going to talk about some teams that I think overperformed, some teams I thought underperformed, and go through a little bit of my top 25 as we go through the rest of this Labor Day weekend, week one, college football. I'm so excited to do this show, to be talking about real games, real people, with real outcomes. This is amazing. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the number one college football show. My thanks as always to our lead producer, Tyler Wojak, our coordinating producer, executive producer is Catherine Donnelly. Our director is John Marcus. That's Niles Owens on the live stream switches. Rachel Cohen is our lead of screening. Javion Duncan is our social media maven. And I am the host, RJ Young. Shout out to my baby girl. She turned seven tonight. Devin, brave. I love you so much. We will see y'all tomorrow. Deuces.